America has a housing affordability crisis. While this may seem like a new problem, it is as old as the New York City tenements of the 1800s. The federal government sought to address this issue with the 1986 introduction of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, known as LIHTC. This program has been credited with the production of more than 3 million affordable housing units. Like all government programs, using LIHTC to finance a project is complicated. Developers and investors seeking to use LIHTC are brought together and guided through the process by specialist firms who syndicate financing. They are guides who navigate around the snares that may entrap the unwary in navigating the program's complex regulations. Today's guest is just such an expert guide. Bob Landis is SVP of Syndication for Community Affordable Housing Equity Corporation, headquartered in beautiful Raleigh, North Carolina. KHEC is a nonprofit equity syndicator. Those of us of a certain age were seeped in the syndications of the 80s. Now that was a great time for housing. Bob, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for your invitation and interest. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Tell us about yourself and KHEC. Well, I've worked uh, exclusively in the multifamily industry for my entire career. And that includes roles in almost all sectors of the apartment business throughout the U.S. That includes uh, market rate, affordable, student housing, and I've worked in both uh, for both private and public owners. And in recent years, I've been working more in the affordable sector of the industry. Now, KHEC is a nonprofit tax credit syndicator based in Raleigh, as you mentioned. It helps to develop and foster healthy neighborhoods by raising equity capital and investing in affordable rental housing and community revitalizations. So KHEC is one of the largest nonprofit equity syndicators in the U.S. And in our 30 years of existence, we have syndicated nearly $2.9 billion in investments in 12 states and the District of Columbia. And those states are primarily the Southeast and the Middle Atlantic. And our portfolio now is over 36,000 units in 700 communities. Our viewers may not be familiar with what a syndicator does. Give us a short overview. What's a typical syndication look like? Well, it's a somewhat complex business, but I'll try to put it in simple terms. Tax credit syndicators basically bridge the gap. They're in between investors who seek tax credits and developers who hold the tax credits but want equity financing for their projects. So investors typically in, in this sector are banks, and they will typically invest in a KX-sponsored investment fund, which provides them with the tax credits that they can use against their federal corporate income tax bill. A typical syndication involves federal tax credits that are allocated to the states on a formula based on population, and the state housing finance agency awards these credits to developers of affordable rental properties in a competitive process. So after the credits are awarded, the developer will negotiate a sale of the credits to a syndicator in exchange for equity funding to help build or renovate a project. And the syndicator typically puts together an investment fund that contains a number of projects, you know, 10, 15, or 20 projects, and they seek investment in the fund in exchange for the uh, credits and other investment benefits. And then that flows up to the investors that buy into that fund. That's really it in a very simple way. Great explanation. Litech comes in two flavors, 4% credit and 9% credit. 
What is the difference and what situations would you use one over the other? Well, the big difference between the two types of credits is the fact that the 9% credit generates about 70% of the equity investment in a typical project and 4% credits only generate about 30% of the equity that's needed. So both credits are used for rehab and for new construction deals, but the 4% involves tax-exempt bonds. As a result, is a much more complex financial transaction. The 9% typically does not have any other federal subsidies. So a key situation in which a developer may choose one credit versus another is the fact that the 9% credit is awarded competitively, as I mentioned earlier. And in many states, there could be three or more applications for each project that gets awarded. So therefore, as a developer, you can spend years putting a deal together. And if you don't get an award, you have a lot of dollars invested without getting a return. So there's risk there, a lot of risk. Um, so the higher subsidy amount provided by the 9% credits enhances the feasibility of the project because it allows greater leeway typically for what we call income targeting, the size of the project, and being able to locate projects in counties with really lower incomes. The 4% are not awarded competitively and are basically only limited by the tax-exempt bonding authority available at the state level. So sometimes it's referred to as a uh, non-competitive award. The developer will automatically receive credits for a 4% deal. And the 4% deal typically has to be larger in order to amortize all these bond costs that have to be spread over all the units to finance the deal. If I had to sum it up, the 9% credits are really more versatile, but they're scarce given the high demand for affordable housing and being able to develop those projects. The 4% deals are typically larger and located in communities with higher incomes. They're able to absorb a project that's larger, say 100 or more units. So that's the, in essence, the the difference between the two. So when using the 4% tax credit, Bob, additional financing is required. What are your sources of these funds? Well, for starters, the source has to be acceptable to the tax-exempt bond buyer who are relying basically on the permanent financing on the property to pay off the bonds upon completion of the project. So the developer will use a number of sources, which could include government-insured financing like a HUD-type loan, maybe a 223F or D4 mortgage program. Um, the Rural Development Administration through the Department of Agriculture has loans for rural development projects that are awarded tax credits. So there is financing there that's government insured. And then typically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are big players because they're offering insured loan products that will also be acceptable to that tax exempt bond buyer. So developers like particularly those last two, Freddie and Fannie, they like those products because of the long amortization periods on the mortgages, they're typically 35 years or even longer than that. KHEC has a small number of non-LIHTC properties. Under what conditions do you get involved in those deals? Well, we get involved in non-LIHTC properties because it furthers our mission of fostering healthy neighborhoods and sustainable communities. And examples would be our new markets tax credit investments, which often include needed uh, community facilities like YMCAs, healthcare, and job creating facilities. Um, our investments in energy tax credits have included solar energy installations, like in the state of New York, for example. Um, historic tax credits 
or another type of tax credit that helps to preserve culturally significant buildings in the country for future generations while adapting their use to housing or other uses that benefit the community. So those would be examples of like some non-LITEC type projects we might get involved with. The Fed is aggressively raising interest rates. They may have raised them while we've been talking. You never know. <laughs> Let's just say they are expected to continue. How will this affect business over the next couple of years? Well, the most immediate and probably the longer term impact, it's putting pressure on our developers by raising interest expense on construction and permanent financing. Because that's a cost, right? And your pro forma and ultimately in your operating costs. So these higher costs have to be offset either through additional equity funding, value engineering the deal, or deferring developer fees or other tactics they might use to try to absorb some of these costs. And then you couple that with the well-publicized higher labor and materials costs that have been going on the last two years or so. It is really much harder to get deals done in this environment because the developers are kind of getting hit on all sides. It's like a triple whammy, high labor, high construction materials, interest costs, hitting them all at once, and likely will result in fewer affordable units being delivered in the next few years, just at the time when we need them the most. And so that's a problem. Congress just passed, effectively, a 15% minimum tax on corporations. Will this increase the demand for tax credits? Well, I think the impact of the minimum um, tax for especially for large corporate, I believe it's for organizations that have over a billion in revenue, or there's some kind of a huge number that's involved. But the one thing that one impact that might be there would be the pricing of credits may decrease as the investment may be less attractive to some large investors with income of more than a billion, assuming that the 15% minimum is net of tax credits. I think some of the rules are still a little uncertain at this point, and I'm not a CPA, but we're watching that with interest, obviously. But putting that aside, many, if not most of our investors, are more driven by the need to meet other federal requirements like the Community Reinvestment Act, which are requirements on banks, you know, to reinvest back in areas where they have bank deposits, you know, from uh, their customers. Or um, Fannie and Freddie have a duty to serve requirement in their charters, which also influences, you know, where they're investing some of their money and credit. So it isn't always the economic bottom line that's really being affected. It's more, you know, this is more, more of a secondary impact. So I would say that the minimum tax rate, it's an important development, but it's I don't see it as having like a, an earth-shaking impact at this moment. I could be wrong later as things shake out. But right now, I think a lot of these investors are still looking at, they have to invest dollars in certain parts of the country in order to meet other federal requirements. KHEC operates in the southeast to the mid-Atlantic states. Mississippi is not historically a big market for you, yet over a third of your recent projects were there. Why? Well, that's a really great question, and uh, I appreciate your homework on our activity. Um, we carefully considered this expansion of our footprint as a result of an affordable preservation portfolio opportunity with some rural development properties in rural areas of Mississippi, with which we have a lot of experience elsewhere in the Southeast, particularly in Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina. And the investor and developer that were involved with this portfolio 
they were attracted to Kayak because of our track record in this area. And all the deals were substantially renovated to continue providing quality, affordable housing in rural areas of the state. So we, in essence, were brought a deal because of our experience and doing exactly that kind of portfolio. So that's why we expanded. We decided it was a deal worth doing. Bob, thank you for providing clarity and for blazing a path forward for housing providers. Great show. Thank you very much. And um, appreciate uh, your interest in this sector, which doesn't often get the publicity that some others do. There's hope. With folks like Bob and KHEC leading the way, we may someday see the light at the end of the affordability tunnel. Having the right guide may be the key to a successful outcome for all parties, investors, developers, and residents. Thank you for joining us. I'm Linda Hoffman. Look for our next exciting episode of NAHB Power Hitters.